this might not excite anyone but Sean, but you know, I was looking at my road atlas earlier, and I was looking at parts of Montana, thinking about a hunting trip. And uh, we've talked about this in the past, and I've never gotten it done. Uh, I don't know if you guys like these. I love this. Is the new one? This Sam's has a good price. It's ten dollars for this road atlas, and uh, I love. This is serious reading material. You know, I can just sit down with this and uh, look at places we've been or look at places I'd like to go to. And, you know, on one hand, oh, what's a good example? You know, if you look at this thing, there's so much information on here that it's easy to get lost. And if you don't have kind of a starting point and a destination in mind and, and kind of connect some dots between those two points, it's easy to just have information overload you're not sure where you're going, who's on first, and all that good stuff. If you know where you're starting and where you're going, then the road atlas is a great thing because it shows you how you get there, what some of the intersections are, or the tourist spots along the way. As we look at Daniel 11, I want to suggest to you this morning that Daniel 11 can be as confusing as a road map if you don't know where you're starting and where you're going. It's information overload. If we start, though, with a sense of where we're at, and where we're going, we can follow the road, we can see some of the major intersections, and make some sense out of it all. Otherwise, it's easy, very easy to get lost. This is a different, somewhat difficult, Zach, passage to teach through because it's got so many details in it. We'll make a little bit of sense of it. And just to tell you in general, where we're starting, you remember in chapter 10, this whole last section started, 10, 11, and 12, one passage. Daniel had a vision. The angel comes to explain it to him. And the major explanation is here in chapter 11. And it's a prophecy primarily related to Israel and the nations. We're going to start in the Medo-Persian Empire right at the time of Daniel. That's the, that's the home spot we're going to start at, about 536 B.C. We're going to end up at King Jesus' new empire in Jerusalem at a date yet to be determined. That hasn't happened yet. That We'll see that in chapter 12 primarily. But along the way, we're going to go through Alexander the Great's empire, and then we're going to spend most of the time, most of the road section will be in this morning, is about a 150-year period, from about the death of Alexander the Great to the death of Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. That's during the period of the Maccabees. That's where most of this takes place. Up through verse 35, the eyes are already glazing. I can see. We're on the road map. We're going. The trip's begun. The, uh, uh, verse 36 turns the corner. It's like turning the map. You know when you have this big road atlas, there's insets. You turn the map, and you skip, and you, you focus. You highlight this one section. Verse 36 on, jump, more than 2,000 years. Because we go from verse 35, we're 164 B.C., and verse 36, we're somewhere in the future. We skip over the rest of the silent year period of Israel's history, the rest of the Maccabean period, Jesus' presence on the earth, the church age, and we hook back up with passages we've read earlier about the Roman Empire and the Antichrist. And this is helpful on one hand in the sense that Antiochus in the Old Testament merges right into the Antichrist person in the end of this chapter, chapter 11 from verse 36 on. So you see the picture of him in one spot, and the next verse basically shows you the greater fulfillment in the person of the Antichrist towards the end. So stick with me. I'm going to talk quickly through this. There's a lot here, 
And we're going to, just like on the roadmap, hit the, hit the highlights and the intersections. Let's pray as we do. Lord, we know that all Scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable. And so I pray that as we look at Daniel 11 this morning, you'll give us something that is helpful, that, pro, that profits us, that builds us up and encourages us. Sometimes, Lord, it's enough just to gain some kind of handle or understanding on a passage in the scripture, but I pray that you'll encourage us more than just that, that you'll be speaking to us about things in our life, giving us hope and encouragement. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first stop, we're starting at verse 2. If you remember, we included verse 1 in the topic on spiritual warfare we've looked at previously, but the first stop, Medo-Persian Empire. Remember, Daniel's been part of two great world empires, Babylon, now Medo-Persia, This is 536. This is the end of his life, if you remember. The angel tells him, related to the vision he's seen and giving an explanation, he says, I'm telling you the truth. Behold, three more kings, King Cyrus the high king with King Darius in Babylon are ruling right now. He says, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. There are more than four kings in the kingdom of Persia in their history, but Scripture only wants to tell us about four. The fourth, King Xerxes, and let me just tell you, when we read this passage, Scripture is just going to talk in general terms, kings of the north, kings of the south, Persia, etc. It's secular history that fills all this in. It's secular history that tells us the names of who these guys are and the amazing accuracy of these prophecies about uh, what period this is, what king this is, what event this is. And we'll look at some of the specific events yet to come. But this verse 2 takes us through the greatest king of Persia's history, which was King Xerxes. He was by far the wealthiest of all their kings. He also sought to go in and extend his empire by conquering Greece. And it didn't work. He failed. But it stirred up so to speak, the Greek's hornet's nest because later, under Alexander, there's been animosity between these two kingdoms because of this, and it'll overflow once Alexander becomes king. So in this first verse, verse 2, it just tells us Persia's got three more kings coming, and one is going to stir himself up against Greece. It won't work. Look at verse 3. We're going from Persia straight into the Greek empire, and if you remember... We've read this at least three or four different ways. God's told us what the major Gentile world powers would be. This is simply the latest time we've heard that Greece would follow Persia. Verse 3 says, A mighty king, this is jumping up to about 334 B.C. from 480, 150-year jump. A mighty king will arise. He will rule with great authority. He will do as he pleases. That means no one can oppose him. He does what he wants. This is Alexander the Great. As soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority which he wielded. His sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. And again, if it's not too much of a strain, if you think back to the passages we've looked at in Daniel 7 and 8, Alexander and Greece was represented as this leopard, this powerful killer with four wings that could just skim above the earth and was this next great terror on the earth as an empire. Or in chapter 8, Daniel uh, pictured 
Alexander the Great as a goat with one great big horn in the middle of his forehead that would come over and would just trounce Persia, Persia's goat king, so to speak. And that's what we're looking at here. And the same thing we saw before is reiterated here. Alexander's reign is brief. He has incredible power. He does exactly as he wants. He conquers all of the, uh, the world, so to speak, that he wanted to. And then he dies. His descendants, he had two, were either murdered or died. And his four generals divvy up his kingdom into four compass points, just the way this prophecy stated. So he's got four generals. They divide up his kingdom, though none of them has his authority or power. Greece was at its apex under him. It's divided up, and each of these divisions has their own limited power compared to where they started. The third stop on this highway is the most detailed it lasts for about 150 years, from 323, the death of Alexander the Great, to 164 B.C. This is the death of Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV. This period, it always talks about the king of the north and the king of the south. And remember, when Alexander's empire gets cut up, Ptolemy, king, or General Ptolemy takes Egypt, and General Seleucus takes Syria. And what we have from verses 5 through 21 is just this description of these two kingdoms battling back and forth with one another. This section is so detailed that this is, if, if for no other passage, this passage is one of the reasons why many skeptics refuse to accept Daniel as inspired. They say that it's impossible for prophecy to be as detailed as this passage is about future events. And there's just a ton of them in this passage. One king after another, one battle after another. You know, if you accept that God is God and that he is, as he says in this book, controlling all things, then there's no problem. If you have a problem with that, this passage is a problem for you. But verses 5 through 21 are going to talk about the fallout from Alexander the Great's empire, Egypt and Syria, and the battling back and forth that they'll go through for 150 years. We're going to skim some passages through this. Look at verse 5. The king of the south will go strong, grow strong. That's Ptolemy Soter the first. This is the first king of Egypt. And remember, this has nothing to do with anything. Cleopatra isn't Egyptian. She's Greek because she's actually the descendant of Seleucid. She's not even a Ptolemaic descendant. She's a Seleucid descendant whose ancestor, also named Cleopatra, was given in marriage to make a covenant with Egypt. So Cleopatra, later on in Roman history, more history that we're familiar with, Cleopatra is actually Greek. She's not Egyptian. And the Greeks stayed with the Greeks when they ruled Egypt. They didn't intermarry, so to speak. In fact, one of these guys, his wife helped him in the battle. His wife, like Abraham and Sarah, his wife's also his sister. They, they took over some of the Egyptian practices of marrying within families, but... Uh, it's the Greeks ruling Egypt now. They're not, they're not uh, becoming Egyptian. They're staying Greeks ruling Egypt and the Greeks ruling Syria as well. So King Soter I, king of the south, along with one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion, his dominion will be a great dominion indeed. And that's the first Seleucus, Nicator. That's the, uh, the general of Alexander also. Initially, these two have to kick out another guy who wants part of the kingdom. So they collaborate. They kick the other guy out who's threatening Syria. And as a result, Seleucus and Syria, initially, become the stronger of these two kingdoms. Come down to verse 7. 
One of the descendants of her line will arise in his place, and he will come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. You know, if you read any kind of history, this reminds me of Herod's history. This period, these two kingdoms are always fighting with one another. They're always looking for an advantage. So at one point, the king of Egypt makes the king of Syria divorce his wife, marry the king of Egypt's daughter. The king of Egypt dies. The king of Syria divorces his Egyptian wife. His former wife poisons and kills both her husband and his second wife. And this is where we jump back into here. This is like the intrigues of Herod the Great where the father's killing the son and the wife's conspiring with one son against another. This is the type of back and forth you've got through this passage. Come down to verse 11. The king of the south, Egypt again, Ptolemy, and this is with Arsinoe, his sister and wife, will be enraged and they'll go forth and fight with the king of the north. And this is Antiochus III or Antiochus the Great, as he's called. And the latter will raise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the foreman. They're going to battle back and forth, and it doesn't matter that one battle's won, there's another to fight, and on, and on, and on. That's what we've got. Go down to verse 18 and 19. This period that we're talking about already, you generally won't read a lot about in popular history. You know, normally, most of us, if, if we're reading something, we'll go from Greek history specific to Roman history specific. You don't read much about Syria and Egypt during this period. Verses 18 and 19, remember Rome is the up and coming power. And verse 18 and 19, this is the next stop on the highway. This is where Greece, the world's history would have been changed apart from these two verses because this is when Persia tried to come in again and conquer Greece. And if you've heard any uh, Greek history, Thermopylae, the battle at Thermopylae stopped the Persian Empire from coming into all of Asia and southern Europe. This would have changed the history and the course of the world. It's not what God wanted for one reason or another. And so verse 18 and 19 read, He will turn his face, this is the same Antiochus the Great, he'll turn his face to the coastlands and he'll capture many, but a commander... And this is Scipio of Rome. A commander will put a stop to his scorn. He'll repay him for his scorn. So he'll turn his face towards the fortresses of his own land, but he'll stumble and fall and be found no more. Uh, Scipio stops at Thermopylae, this great, where just basically a very small contingent of Greek and Roman army hold against a huge Persian uh, army in this very small area. And they stop the advance of a kingdom. And this changed the course of history. Antiochus, when he's, he's embarrassed and he has to go back, he is killed. He'll fall and be found no more, trying to raise the taxes that he now must pay to Rome because when he lost, Rome said, we're going to get tribute from you now. He's robbing a temple and he's killed. This is the, the ignoble end he came to. Go down to verse 21. 21 to 35 join someone who's more familiar at least to students of biblical history because at verse 21 we're introduced to Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes. This is the guy that we know from the Maccabean period. Uh, verse 21 says, in his place, in the place of the former king of Syria, a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Now, Antiochus the Great, does, or Epiphanes, does become king. 
but it's through a conspiracy. He's not the first claimant to the throne, and he has one other guy poisoned, and the guy that poisoned him, he has murdered. And that's how he gets to the throne, by intrigue. <clears throat> Verse 22, the overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. When this Antiochus takes over Syria, he begins the expansion process again, and he comes through Israel, and when it says uh, the prince of the covenant is shattered, Antiochus has Onias, the high priest of Israel, murdered during this period as he comes down through Israel towards Egypt. Verse 23, after an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception. He will go up and gain power with a small force of people. Verse 24, in a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm. He'll accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He'll distribute plunder, booty, possessions among them, and devise schemes against strongholds. This Antiochus wanted power and geography, and more than anyone before him, he took the wealth he got in these conquests, and he paid the commanders of his armies very handsomely to keep their loyalty and to continue this ball rolling of seizing more power as he heads down to Egypt. Look at verse 29. At the appointed time, he will return and come into the south. He's already conquered Egypt once at this point. But this last time, it will not turn out the way it did before because, verse 30, ships of Kittim. Kittim is Cyprus. This probably means Roman ships. Rome was in, Rome was, uh, in control, basically, of most of the Mediterranean, Cyprus included. Ships probably of Rome will come against him. Therefore, he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant. Let me just mention, remember how the guy before was embarrassed at Thermopylae and he goes back and now he's got to raise tribute? Well, when Antiochus went to Egypt, the story is told that the Roman general there drew a circle in the sand around him and said, you'll tell me before you leave this circle what your intentions are. You're either going to attack Egypt or you're leaving on our terms. So he's very embarrassed, very shamed, and had to say, I'm not willing to face Rome. We're going home. And on his way home, this says he will return and become enraged. This is the guy, you know, when he comes home after a hard day at work, he kicks the dog. What did the dog do? Nothing, but he's mad. He's going to take it out on someone, and that's exactly what Antiochus does. He kicks the dog. He's enraged at the Holy Covenant, Israel, and takes action. He will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. If you remember on an earlier week, we read out of 1 Maccabees, not considered scripture, generally, but has some great history in it. We read about this period. And if you remember, Antiochus tells the Jews, you may not observe your religion, you may not read the law, you may not gather to worship the God of Israel. In fact, let me continue reading here for just a minute. Uh, Forces with him will arise and desecrate the sanctuary fortress. Some of the Jews, under threat, uh, under his threat, join with him. Uh, Those who forsake the Holy Covenant, they did, by the scores, to save their lives. Some joined with him. They desecrated the sanctuary fortress. They do away with the regular sacrifice, and they set up the abomination of desolation. You remember we said, when we've looked at him before, he's a picture of Antichrist. He went in, he offered a pig on the altar at the temple. And they went into the holy place, and they set up an idol. We're not sure if this was just one of his many idols or if it was one of the standards like the Romans would later use. But he desecrated the sanctuary. He forbid sacrifices to be carried on. The Jews who would not capitulate 
and follow him by forsaking the law were murdered by the thousands. It says, verse 32, By smooth words he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant, but the people who know their God will display strength and take action. This is Judas Maccabeus and his sons. And again, if you remember, if you read 1 Maccabees, you read about the uprising. And although this passage doesn't tell us, Israel's just been a vassal for hundreds of years now. They've been a second-rate point on the map between the larger countries feuding with each other. And for the first time in hundreds of years under the Maccabees, they expand Israel's borders to the borders it had roughly under David. They go back to the river. They take back to the Mediterranean, back down to Egypt. And this is exactly what this passage very briefly is describing. Their God will display strength and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many. The Maccabees called on the Jews to go back to the law, to go back to the temple. And if you remember, the Jewish Feast of Hanukkah comes from this time. The Feast of Lights is when the temple was cleansed of the pollution from this desecration, and the lights, the candles, were relit in the temple. comes from this period. Uh, Let's see. Some will fall by sword, flame, captivity, plunder for many days. When they fall, they'll be granted a little help. But, verse 34, many will join with them. But in hypocrisy, some are just playing both sides of the fence. Who's ever in the position of power, they're on their side for the time being until someone else turns the apple cart over. Look at verse 35. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. Verse 35, until the end time. This is their transition. We've been talking history up to this point. For Daniel, this is all in the future. For us, at this point, we're reading history. But at verse 35, it says, until the time of the end. Clearly, the end has not come yet. It's still future for us, even as we read. Look at verse 36. At verse 36, this is like turning the map page. We've just gone from the clear line. We've hit a couple points on the highway. We've turned the page and suddenly we're looking at an inset. We've just been catapulted out of 164 BC. We're sometime now in the future. We've left Antiochus in Syria. And now we're going to talk about a king who's not a king of Syria, but a king of the Roman Empire that we've looked at before. Uh, You can look at Daniel 7, uh, Daniel 9. These are the passages we've talked about, the Antichrist from before. But in the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians 2 and Revelation 13. But we skip up ahead. And I don't know if you remember when we talked about this before. This sounds odd. And it sounds like someone's selling you a bill of goods if they tell you. Now you have to take this one sentence, this one passage, and you have to, in your mind, say, I've just left this, this constant point, and now I've jumped ahead somehow. But uh, Isaiah 61 is the very best example. I've mentioned this before. Jesus, in Luke 4, when he quotes Isaiah 61, saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus stops halfway in that verse, and if you read the verse in context in Isaiah, it's one verse. There's no break in it, and it seems to describe the same time and the same person. When Jesus quotes it to say, This verse is fulfilled today in your hearing, he only quotes the first half of the verse. And we understand that that verse, Jesus and God, split right down the middle. The first half was fulfilled when Jesus came. He's proclaiming release to the captives. The second half of the verse, though, says God's judgment to come. Release on one hand, judgment on the other. Well, Jesus, 
quotes the first half, God's release, the, the period of the favor of our Lord, that's now. The second half isn't fulfilled until he comes in judgment yet in the future. So that's an example, like this verse, where if we read it in context, we don't have a clue initially that we've just jumped, made this huge chasm jump, turned the page of the road atlas. Uh, but as you study it and compare it with other uh, passages, it's clear that this is what we've done. And it will become more clear here in these verses ahead. Look at verse 36. The king will do as he pleases. This king now has become the Antichrist. We'll look at this further down at verse 40, I think. He'll do as he pleases. He'll exalt and magnify himself above every god. He'll speak monstrous things against the god of gods. He will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. He'll show no regard for the gods of his father or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god. He will magnify himself above them all. When we've studied the Antichrist and compared the Daniel passages with Revelation, they're very consistent. Boasting, no one can withstand him. He's taking over. He's killing those who name God or try and remain faithful to their God. Go down to verse 40. At the end, time, this ties back in with verse 35, where, where it was clear we were making a shift. At the end time, the king of the south, Egypt again, will collide with him. And the king of the north will storm against him with chariots. This makes it clear. Remember, Antiochus is the king of the north. This person is not Antiochus anymore. If we weren't sure before, we're sure now because the king of the north, the king of Syria now, is also opposing this new king introduced in verse 36. So the picture here is the king of the south, just like it was in the past, comes up. The king of the north, they're fighting this new king, the, the one we know as the king or the ruler of the Roman Empire. They come against him with horsemen, ships. He'll enter other countries, overflow them, and pass through. He'll enter the beautiful land. It's a term for Israel. Many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. You know, geographically for us, that would be Jordan primarily, just on the east side of the Jordan River today. Verse 42, he'll stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. He'll gain control over hidden treasures of gold and silver, over all the precious things of Egypt, Libya, Ethiopians. Verse 44, rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him, and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. Rumors from the east may mean, if you remember in Revelation, it says that a 200 million man army is going to come over when the Euphrates River is dried up, going to come over from the east, and it's speculated, this is probably the rumor he's hearing here that takes him out of Egypt and going north again. As he goes north, verse 45, he'll pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, that's Jerusalem, Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. And again, <clears throat> this does not give a lot of detail on this, but when it says he'll come to his end and no one will help him, this is Revelation 19, 19. This is King Jesus descending from heaven with his armies, and it says the beast, the Antichrist, and his false prophet are thrown alive into the lake of fire. No one is going to stop him. No one is going to help him against King Jesus when his end comes. And into chapter 12, we'll only take the first verse. At that time, Michael, the great prince, remember he's the angel we've already met, who stands guard over the sons of your people, Israel, 
will arise. And remember, we've seen before the angels, like the demons, are influencing nations and kings so that God's program is being brought about in the end. Michael, the prince of Israel, will arise. He's going to help Israel make it through these days. It says there will be a time of distress. Jeremiah calls this the time of Jacob's trouble. Matthew 24, Jesus says this time will be so bad that unless God cut it short, no life would survive on the earth. This is the same time period. This is also the last seven-year period of the Daniel 9 prophecy about Daniel 70 periods of seven have been appointed for your people. This is that last seven-year period. It said this time is so bad, such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time, and at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. You remember Jesus says in Matthew 24, those who endure to the end will be saved. Those who endure to the end will be rescued. Same thing here. So from verse 36 on, yet future, we get the description of Israel's future, or future history to come, right up to the time of King Jesus. You can read about this in Zechariah 14 and Revelation 19. So the end of our road atlas that we've gone through on this journey this morning started at Medo-Persia and it ends at Jesus returning to establish his rule from Jerusalem and set up his empire on the earth. Now you notice everything we've read has to do either with the empires in the east or with Israel. There's no mention of the church in here anywhere, is there? In fact, when an angel stands up, it's to strengthen Israel again. And if you read Matthew 24 and 25, or Revelation 6 through 19, you will not find the church listed anywhere. You will find Israel, and you will find the nations. You will not find the church. And this is where, if we're going along that roadway again, you get to a big city, you know you can either go right through the city, or you can take the loop around. My daughters are learning about these. You know, four in front of this highway number means that's a bypass. And this is like going through city. Do you take I-70 through the city, or do you take 470 around the city? And you've been on the same highway, and suddenly you can go one way or the other. And let me suggest, just to make sense, that the church, we're not, we're not going through the city. We're on a bypass. We're not part of this part of the roadway. We're bypassing this whole time. We will not be here. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 tells Christians and First and Second Thessalonians, our home group has just finished going through. A little confusing at times, but the point of both of those letters was to tell Christians what to expect in the future. Paul tells them that Christians are not appointed to wrath. And in both these letters, the context is what has God got coming for the world? He's got wrath coming during that last seven-year period. Paul tells the Christians, you're not appointed to wrath. You've been appointed to salvation. If you read Revelation 15.1, it's clear. It says, when the bold judgments begin, it says that the wrath of God is being poured out on the earth. Paul tells the church, you're not appointed for wrath. We're not here. 1 Thessalonians 4 describes the church, Christians, who are alive, joining Christians who have already died, being caught up to meet Jesus Christ in the air, it says to be with him forever, from then on. Before we hit the city, so to speak, we catch the bypass. We're going around. We're not part of this. these verses. We're not going to be here. We're going to be with King Jesus in heaven, I trust, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Israel, to put it in an Old Testament context, Israel is like Noah. You remember Noah looks, God looks at the earth and he's not happy. So he develops a plan 
from eternity past. He's not playing, playing this as he goes. His plan is, I'm going to wipe out the earth. I'm going to pour out my wrath. I'm going to judge mankind. But I'm going to save Noah. Noah builds the ark. He's in the ark. God pours out his judgment on the earth, his wrath on the earth. Everyone is taken away in judgment except Noah. Noah's ark lands safely at the end of that period. And Noah and his family begin a new kingdom era, if you will, repopulating the earth. Noah, like the Jews, like Israel, goes through the flood. He goes through the time of judgment, comes out safe on the other end to start things all over again. The church is like Enoch. And if you remember this this great guy Enoch, just before Noah, just tells us that Enoch was this guy that walked with God. He had a relationship with God. And it says Enoch was not because God took him. God raptured him, we could say. God simply reached down and took this guy that he was in relationship with and took him off the earth. He didn't die. He was just taken. He was snatched, if you will. And that's where we're at. Enoch walked with God and was not. God took him. The church, Christ's bride, not destined for wrath, is just taken, just like Enoch, off the earth, while Israel, like Noah, is left here to go through the period of judgment They will survive. They will come out on the other end of this seven-year period, and they'll start over. They'll start the new kingdom with King Jesus in Jerusalem. Jerusalem and Israel will become the center of the earth and this this 1,000-year period of blessing. So one road goes through the city through judgment, if you will. The other's a bypass. That's the one we're on. That's the future we have. Sean probably doesn't like to ask for directions. You know, when he gets lost, he gets his road map out. And Tanya says, please ask for directions. And Sean says, no, I'm going to look at my map and I'm going to figure it out. So if Sean's driving down the road, even if he's got this good map, he can get lost. He can get lost. You and I, we've got this road map, but better than the road map, instead of driving, Sean's not driving, we're on a train. And the train is on the tracks. And we can still look at the roadway and we can see the points along the road. We know where we were at and we know where the train's taking us. We don't even have to worry about getting lost because we're not driving. We're not even paying for the gas. The engine pulling the train is, is tooling us down the roadway. The tracks are keeping us right in track. We're going to get exactly where God wants us to be. So we've got a roadway. Better than that, we're on the train. We can't get lost. God has said, I don't know if you noticed, two verses said, what has decreed will happen. And again, through this whole book, you remember, if if you don't know anything else, I was looking at my notes. The very first time we introduced the book of Daniel, the, the great theme, the key theme of this is God is in control. God's already determined the future from the past. He's already determined your future and mine. The only question for any of us really is just related to our relationship with the Lord. It's a given. Those who don't belong to Christ, I know where they're going. They're going with the Antichrist to the lake of fire. Those who know Christ, if they're Jews in the future, they're going to come through the storm. They're going to start a new kingdom with King Jesus. Those Christians, we're going to rise to meet with the Lord in the air and we're going to be with him forever. There's absolutely no problem. Whichever camp you're in, Your future is decreed. You're on a train one way or another. The the real question is, which train are you on? We were talking about this the other day, but Jesus, by his death on the cross and his resurrection, has purchased every train ticket any one of us can use. The tickets are there. 
The Philippian jailer asked Paul, what do I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus. That's all we have to do. That's it. Ticket's there. The train's there. The roadway's set. All we have to do is get on. It's that simple. And being on the train, nothing, nothing can stop God's will, his ultimate will, from being fulfilled in your life or mine. Paul says in 2 Timothy, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded. He's able to keep what I've entrusted him until that day, until that future day. We serve a God who's already decreed the end from the beginning. He set the road atlas in front of us, and he's put us on the train. There's no getting lost. He's in control, and we're gladly uh, on the train with the ticket he purchased. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes the very simplest lessons are the hardest to learn. Something as simple as saying, God is in control. Lord, We're challenged to believe that when our own lives are turned upside down. It's easy to forget that when our life isn't going the way we want it to. And Lord, while we know the big picture, we know how the story ends, we know that the good guy wins and that we get to be with him forever, we know that. Lord, help us to apply this to our life today with the same confidence we can have for the future we can have today. It doesn't mean that times are always easy, Father. They aren't. You've told us as Christians that we are destined for suffering on this earth. It is part of our lot. Lord, help us to, with Daniel, simply trust you and entrust ourselves to you during the time you've given us on the earth. Thanks that your eternal purposes will be carried out. There's nothing that threatens that. Lord, it does make a difference to our experience on the earth, whether we're trusting you or not along the way. Help us to be those like Daniel who know you and walk with you, who honor you, Lord, and who trust you for our future. We do that this morning, Lord. We offer you praise now. In Jesus' name, amen.